0: Well, good morning. If you're a sports fan or maybe a little bit more than a casual sports fan, you know that uh, today is the second game of the NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, You'll also know, perhaps, that uh, Steph Curry is the star player. He's a two-time MVP. He's known for his incredible long-distance shooting, his ball handling, his crazy layups of increasing difficulty, and he's also known because he's an outspoken believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, you may own a, you might know that uh, Under Armour came out with a new line with his shoes with a verse from the Bible, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, the reason I bring this up is because today we're going to be starting a sermon series based in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We won't get to chapter 4 till towards the end, but... We are beginning a sermon series for the summer based out of Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm excited about preaching through Philippians for several reasons. One, it's even though it's a short letter, only four chapters, 104 verses. It covers a lot of great Christian doctrine and truths. Uh, You'll be We'll look at uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ about the power and reality of the resurrection. We'll look at justification by faith in Christ alone. We'll look at aspects of the second coming. We'll look at what it means to to try to grow in Christ-likeness. And we'll also see some relational side of the Christian faith, how we are to relate to and deal with each other in the body of Christ. A a big contribution from a study of Philippians also is it teaches us how to find joy in the midst of personal struggles and tragedy in life, something that sooner or later all of us are going to face and all of us are going to have to come to grips with, with that, it's perhaps a place where truth touches life at its rawest point when our belief is put to the test when something difficult or hard happens in our life, when the rubber meets the road. Um, an example of, of a difficult situation, and you might remember this story from 1998 or remember the story about the crash of a Swiss Air Flight 111. It crashed in the waters off, in the, over Nova, off of Nova Scotia. Everybody was killed. And among the victims was a son of a, of a well known prize fighter, former prize fighter, boxer, named Jake Lamotta. It was, he's, you know, the movie Raging Bulls based, uh, based upon his life. Uh, th- what people didn't know also at the time was that another son of his had died just a few months earlier in different circumstances. And so when Jake Lamotta heard about the crash and that there were no survivors, he, he asked a question, he cried out and expressed something that a lot of us would have also. He said, What is God? Saying to me, so we're in question. Why would God allow two sons, same family, same father, to die in the same year? It's a mystery. We we can't completely answer that. It's a mystery, both personal and theological, because unfortunately we live in a world where tragedies like this have become commonplace. Whether it affects you, see on the headlines on CNN or on the news or you see it in sign a journal, or you experience it in your own life. A lot of unexplainable things happen in our world at times, and we are left with answers that don't completely satisfy. Now, the book of Philippians is not going to give us the final answer to the mystery of suffering and how to experience joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, but it will point us to the way to a genuinely Christ-like, God-honoring response. As we read these four chapters, Paul's going to tell us that in many ways, many different ways, that while we cannot control what happens to us in life, much as we'd like to be able to do that, we do have control over how we respond to what happens to us in life. Tragedy strikes, children die, planes fall from the air, people get cancer, people gossip, marriages break up, people lie about their behavior, etc., It's all part of the consequences of living in a fallen world. But we do have a choice regarding how we will respond to the hurts and heartaches of life, and that's one of the primary contributions from Paul's letter to the Philippians. So, before we jump into Philippians, a little bit of background. Um, It'll be important for you to keep two key dates in mind, the year A.D. 51 and the year A.D. 61. The first date, A.D. 51, is the approximate year when the Apostle Paul made his first visit to Philippi. It's recorded in Acts chapter 16. We're told that he meets Lydia, a woman who sells purple cloth by the riverside, and he leads her to faith in Jesus. Then we're told that he casts a demon out of a, of a young girl, and, and it causes an uproar in town, and, and he's thrown into prison because of this. There he leads the jailer to Christ and then baptizes the jailer and his family in the middle of the night. And soon after that, he leaves town and travels to Berea and Thessalonica, In Athens. Short visit. But from that beginning, a great church is born. And since Paul founded the church, the people in um, in in uh, (coughs) excuse me there, they have in Philippi, they have a a strong connection and love for Paul. And because he had personally led many of them to Christ, he had a strong affection for them. So there's a, a strong bond that you can see as we read through Philippians. It's a very personal letter from Paul. Now we move to the year A.D. 61, 10 years after he started this church. He finds himself in prison in Rome, and he's awaiting trial before Caesar. His life is under threat. He's under house arrest. He's being guarded, and he's chained, where, where we, he's, where he's chained to a, a guard at all times. But he's not in solitary confinement. He can receive visitors. He even can teach and to preach while he's in prison under house arrest. And the church in Philippi finds out about this. And, of course, because of their love for him, their concern for him, they send a much-beloved leader named Epaphroditus to Rome to visit Paul. He's also taking with him a a kind of a love offering because Paul, of course, being in prison, can't really provide for himself. So they send Epaphroditus with a love offering. Well, unfortunately, Epaphroditus, once he gets to Rome, gives Paul the love offering, he becomes sick and he almost dies. Well, eventually he gets back to health. And Paul sends him back to Philippi carrying a brief thank you note to the church. And that brief thank you note is the book of Philippians. It's warm, it's spontaneous, it's personal. Paul uses the words joy or rejoice 14 times in 104 verses. One commentator calls it an intimate diary written by a great apostle of the Christian faith. So that's sort of the background and the context of Paul's letter to the Philippians. So let's jump in starting at verse 3. And we begin by getting a glimpse into Paul's heart and love for the people at Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul begins by expressing gratitude personally for for what the Philippian believers mean to him. He, he, He says that his memory of them and his gratitude of them leads him to give thanks to God. And he prays on their behalf. Now, it's interesting because uh, sometimes when we pray for other people, it's not always thanking God for them. It's God changed them, right? They're struggling with this. Help them to do this better. Help them to become more whatever. Help them, you know, whatever, those sorts of things. And there's a time and place for that. But, but Pastor Steve May offers the following helpful advice about the importance of keeping a positive focus when we pray for other people. I quote, whenever you pray for someone, begin by thanking God for them. Thank God for the role they've played in your life, for all that they've done for you, for the good things they've done for others. Even if you're having conflict with a person, thank God that he or she has given you the opportunity to grow spiritually, to learn forgiveness, to be more patient, and on and on. If you try, you can find something to be thankful for in just about anyone. Quote. When asked how he dealt with his many opponents in politics and enemies, Abraham Lincoln said this, If at all possible, I turn them into my friends. George Buttrick, a pastor and theologian, advises praying for your enemies this way. Lord, bless this person whom I foolishly regard as an enemy. Keep him in thy favor and banish my resentment. Now, one final thing to note about Paul's thanksgiving and gratitude for the Philippians. All that is centered... In the gospel. I'm sure they had warm memories of meals and laughs and, and accomplishing things together and, and all that, but it's all centered, his gratitude is all centered in the gospel. In verse 5, he mentions their partnership in the gospel. Now, the Greek word for partnership is koinonia, which is sometimes translated into the word we use a lot around church, which is fellowship. Now, in our day, sometimes fellowship, we can kind of think of it being where people in church get together and they share some coffee and some cookies and they talk about each other's life a little bit, maybe offer a prayer, which is good. There's a place for that, certainly. But that does not begin to exhaust the New Testament meaning of the word fellowship. The word originally had commercial overtones. For example, if two guys bought a boat and they started a fishing business together, they were said to be in koinonia, a formal business partnership. They shared a common vision. And they, and they invested together to see that vision become a reality. So with that definition in mind, Christian fellowship means sharing the same vision of getting the gospel to the world and then investing personally to make it happen. There's a, there's a call to personal sacrifice, investment, and involvement. So when Paul thanks God for the fellowship of the Philippians, he's thanking God that from the very first day of their conversion that they rolled up their sleeves and they got involved in the advance of the gospel. True fellowship means putting the gospel first as the controlling motive of your life and then doing whatever it takes to spread the life-changing news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's move on to verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A lot of people think this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I, I personally find a lot of comfort and encouragement from this verse. And, and a lot of theologians will use this to kind of forward and, and defend the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. In other words, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in a nutshell is, is the idea that people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, that, that God will continue to work in them no matter what's going on in their lives, that eventually at some point at the end of when all is said and done, that they will be saved, that they're not going to fall away and be lost which is a great doctrine, and I, I do believe that. But I would prefer to say that I believe in the perseverance of God and the preservation of the saints. Philippians 1, 6 teaches us that we will be preserved to the end because God will always persevere. What God starts, he will always, always finish. So three, three things we can pull from this verse. First, God takes the initiative in starting his work in you and me. He is the one who begins a good work in us. Salvation always begins with God. God makes the first move, and if he did not make the first move, we would not make any move at all. We are dead in our sin. He makes the first move. He initiates with us. He begins the work in us. He enables us to respond to him. Perhaps you've heard of the country preacher who was being examined for his ordination to the ministry. And when asked how he'd become a Christian, the preacher replied, I did my part and God did his. Sounded kind of questionable, so the interviewers asked him to explain his part in salvation. And he said, My part was to run from God as fast as I could, God's part was to run after me and catch me and bring me into his family. Which I think is a pretty good biblical answer. Because all of us, the Bible tells us, were born as sinners, running from God outside of his grace and mercy. And unless God took the initiative to find us, we would still be running away from him. Secondly, God takes personal responsibility for completing his work in you and me. God has a good work that he intends to use in your life and in my life. God intends that all his children will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and he will not rest and he will not give up. He will persevere until that work is finally finished. You know, just like in the culture at large, fads and trends come and go in Christian culture. T-shirts, slogans, bumper stickers, things like that. What I remember from the 90s were these buttons that read this. P-B-P-G-I-F-W-M-Y. You know, know, that's, that's way longer than W-W-J-D. And those letters stood for, please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. I may not look like much. But God isn't finished with me yet. And when you look in the mirror and even deeper into your soul and looking at your life, you may not like what you see. You might get discouraged, but God is not finished with you yet. There's good news, and there's bad news in that. The good news is that since God isn't finished yet, we have great hope for the future, right? The, the Maybe I don't know if you'd call it bad news, but the bad news is that since God isn't finished yet, He's not going to let you stay where you are. He's going to keep chipping away. Keep working on you through his Holy Spirit, through his word, to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. And most of us, myself included, have a long, long way to go. But what God starts, he will always, always finish. Third, God guarantees the outcome of his work in you and me. So not only does God start the process and continue the process, he also guarantees its ultimate outcome. He will carry on to completion the work he's begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. Someday you and I will stand before Jesus Christ as redeemed children of God, holy, blameless, complete in every way. And we're a far sight from that today. But a better day is coming for God's people. What is incomplete will be made complete, what is partial will be made whole, what is lacking will be made full. What is broken will be fixed, what is hurt will be healed, what is weak will be strong, and what is temporary will be made permanent. God has promised to do that, and God will not and God cannot lie. God has begun a good work in you, and God always finishes what he starts so let's return for just a second as we pull this together is return to this primary theme. In Paul's letter joy. We know Paul's circumstances. He's in prison. His life is on the line. He's going to be he's chained to a guard. His movements are limited. He's set aside. And for the most part, he doesn't have freedom to see his friends and fellow believers. Why is he so joyful? Why is he so positive and optimistic about life, about what's going on? Well, we know it's not because of his circumstances. Yet instead, he speaks of joy, thanksgiving, gratitude, confidence, love, and peace. He refuses to let his circumstances dictate his emotions. By God's grace, he chose to rise above his circumstances. Let's think about this. Another question here. What is harder? Is it harder to be in prison or is it harder to be out of prison? Well, we're going to think, well, of course, it's harder to be In prison, than out. I mean, who would choose to be in prison? But I've known people who have not chosen to be in prison, but who have found true freedom and have found true joy because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I've also known people on the outside who are enslaved, who don't know freedom, even though they have the freedom to do what they want and go where they want because they're enslaved by bitterness or anger or lust or despair or greed are all sorts of other things that can hold us back. So that leads me to my last statement that might serve as a theme for our entire sermon series. Joy does not depend on circumstances. But joy, true joy, lasting joy, depends and is based on a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, clarification here. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Sometimes we confuse the two and sometimes we experience in them at the same time. You know, maybe you accomplish something in life or your kid does. and You experience joy, you experience happiness. But joy and happiness are not the same thing. I've known people who experience joy in the midst of cancer. In the midst of grief or loss. In the midst of difficult financial or employment situations, in the midst of broken and ended relationships, not a false joy, not a a facade that doesn't face reality, that downplays the struggles and pain of life, but rather a deep joy that understands that circumstances are not the last word, that all things will be made right when Christ returns, that has the perspective of, of eternity. And that finds joy in God's promises to his people and God's presence with his people. One last sports illustration. Troy Aikman won the Super Bowl three times, Hall of Fame quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. I read an article uh, a few years ago about, about him, and, and it talked about how the night after he won the Super Bowl, he was sitting in his hotel room. At the height, he got the MVP, height of his career, Accomplished worked towards this and he all he felt was emptiness. He felt depressed. He felt down. And he, he asked the question, Is this all there is to this? What's what's going on? Why don't I feel excitement and joy? Well, it's because circumstances are not meant to bring us joy. Accomplishments aren't meant to bring us joy. They can bring reward, they can bring some fulfillment, they can bring some happiness for a while, but they're gonna ebb and flow. True joy comes from the Lord if we build our life on our circumstances we're going to be miserable a good portion of our life because our circumstances are not always going to be great we need a source of joy that does not change and that comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone many years ago I learned a little acrostic based on the word joy I've shared it a few times I believe I've never forgotten it God's prescription for joy joy J, Jesus first. O, others second. Y, yourself third. If we don't put Jesus Christ first, joy and happiness, joy especially, will be fleeting. But if we put Jesus Christ first, we can have joy that goes beyond whatever circumstances we may find in life. True joy, lasting joy, the joy that Paul knows, knew, and the joy that Paul commends to us comes only from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in our lives, that you have started something in us and that you will bring it to completion. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to discover the joy that comes from putting you first in our life, from standing upon your promises and resting in your presence. Help us, Lord, to be patient as you do your work in us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.